Welcome back to the Yellow Box Podcast. This week, we're joined by teaching pastor Ian Simpkins as we kick off the series, Defy Gravity. For more information, please visit us at communitychristian.org. Also, if you need prayer, we invite you to text PRAY to 630-793-6399. Our prayer team is standing by and ready to pray for you. Remember, you can always find us on Sundays at the Yellow Box at 9.30, 11.15 a.m. and 5 p.m. We hope to see you there. Well, good morning, community. How are you this morning? I am on cold medicine, so this is going to be a lot of fun. Um, a very special welcome if you're joining us digitally. We love you guys. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, before we dive into the message, though, uh, I did just want to say a quick word. Um, we're wrapping up our 21 days of prayer and fasting today, actually. And some of you have been journeying. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, and that's totally okay. Some of you have been sending me donut photos, which is so mean. Um, I see you, and so does Jesus. But... Uh, I just want to say how proud I am of you. I, I know that, at least for me, this journey has been a lot harder than I anticipated, but it's been such a sweet season knowing that together, not just here, but all of our 11 locations and plenty of people joining us online and all over the world have been praying and fasting together to lean in together to what it is that God wants to do in us and through us, to, to quiet our hearts and to listen to him. And I'm, I'm so proud of you. I'm so grateful for a church community that begins the next year, begins this with a posture of prayer and humility. And the beauty of prayer and fasting is that we can do it year round. It doesn't have to stop here. But I, I did wanna say at the end of this 21 day journey, and I know that plenty of us have been fasting from various different things and the stories that I've already heard have been so, so wonderful. I love being a part of a church family uh, that takes this seriously, leaning into what God wants to do in and through us. So. Um, I want to just pray for us and, uh, and say thank you for journeying with us, and, uh, and then we'll dive right in. Let's pray together. God, I am so grateful that you are a God that is not distant or far, but near, that you are close and present and intimate, God. And for many of us, we, we experience that in new and profound ways these last three weeks. And maybe some of us, we've only just heard of this, God, that you're, you're stirring in us even right now. Would, would you help us to listen to your whisper? to quiet the noise, the clutter of our minds, the things that so much the world wants to throw our direction. God, help us to lean into what you're doing, not only in our lives individually, but in us as a church, God. Thank you for loving us, for coming after us, for forgiving us and leading us, God, helping us uh, find and, and serve you, God. We thank you for the opportunity to join you in your work of helping people find their way back to God. And for that, we say thank you. And we pray all of this in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said... Amen. Uh, so as Aaron mentioned, we're talking about gravity and mainly defying gravity. And uh, if you're like me, gravity's not like a thing that I think about all that often. Like I'm, I'm grateful for it. I'm glad that it's there. But like, did anyone wake up this morning like, man, I can't wait to experience me some gravity? Like no one, no one, we're not usually that aware of gravity unless like if you were to watch me try and play basketball, then it'd be like really obvious, like that boy can't jump at all. But um, I found some photos that I thought were like actually pretty hilarious about people defying gravity in some pretty unique ways, some, some real heroes of the gravitational world. In fact, what I just did is I just Google image searched, um, why do women live longer than men? And here's some of what showed up. Here's the first and one of my favorites. There's this guy. I don't know how he thinks that's gonna go. Like, What's going through his mind right now? Like, I did not think this through entirely, right? He's defying gravity. Or there's, uh, there's this witchcraft. I'm not, I mean, that's pretty, 
amazing. You know who doesn't get enough credit, though, is this guy down there. Like, this guy, just lounging, just having the time of his life. <laughs> or maybe there's this guy. This guy's uh, cleaning his window on the outside of the window, which is scary enough as it is until you realize the context of where he is in the building. There he is. What is wrong with people? Like, what would possess someone to do that? Uh, but the one that I think I resonate most deeply with is, is this guy right here. That is a brave... <laughs> that was the last day they were friends. Did you know that? That's, um... <laughs> but the gravity is, is all around us, and it's, it's constantly pulling at us in one way or another. And you know what? I, I think that money is a lot like gravity. I think it's one of those things that's constantly pulling at us. Some of us are very aware of it, but for most of us, it's, it's maybe something that we're not aware just how much this thing is constantly pulling at us. It's constantly exerting its power in our lives. Like, for example, I know that every single month I got a mortgage to pay, I got groceries to buy, I have like a metric ton of diapers to get. There's so many diapers in my house right now, it's ridiculous. And I know that it's there, but until I actually really begin to pay attention to it, I'm usually not all that cognizant of, of the pull of it, of the gravitational pull of money. In fact, Capital One recently did a survey. Here, here's what they found. They said that 73% of Americans say that finances are the number one cause of stress in their life. Does that resonate with anyone? 73%. I'd like to meet the other 27%. Like, how did you get so zen? What's your secret? But 73% of Americans say the single greatest cause of stress and strain and anxiety in their life is money. I think it's something that we all experience. And here's the thing that I find so fascinating. I don't think this is a new thing. I don't think the gravitational pull from our culture of money, of possessions, I, I don't think it's a new thing at all. In fact, I think Jesus recognized this. The video that we watched a little, a little earlier, that's a portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, arguably the most famous sermon he's ever given. And in it, he's talking about what culture will often try to drag us towards, this gravitational pull. And he knew that these people would face challenges. In fact, here's the thing that I always find so interesting. Did you know that Jesus spent... 25% of his earthly ministry talking about wealth and money. 25%, a quarter of his earthly ministry, he talks about what we do with our stuff. Whenever we talk about money, inevitably there's always somebody that says, um, yeah, should, like, shouldn't, we talk, shouldn't we be talking about like spiritual things though? If you're at a place where you think that you're more spiritual than Jesus, we need to have a conversation. Because apparently he sees it as absolutely critical that we talk about it. So I think ultimately this, uh, this pull of culture leads to really three places, hurry, worry, and consume. The gravitational pull of culture, and I think this Capital One survey shows it perfectly, leads to one of three or maybe all three general postures, hurry, worry, and consume. So the first one is hurry. And I think we, all, we probably all get this, right? Because the pressure to buy or to purchase, it's not here, buy this sometimes, it's always buy when. Now, buy now, act now, call now, deal's ending. It's never actually ending, by the way, but there's this like constant urgency, like what are you doing still sitting there? Pick up the phone, act now. It's stressful, isn't it? Like has anyone ever had this experience when you go to Target? Uh, I never know how much is missing from my life until I step foot in Target. Anyone had that experience? Like why did I go here to get a gallon of milk? I came back with like a futon and a lamp. What are we doing? Like <laughs> that's intentional. Target is designed that way 
to make you feel this sense of urgency, like, I don't even know what this, but I must have five of them in my life right now. It creates a hurry in our lives, but Jesus himself in Matthew 6 says, for the pagans run after all these things. He's saying people that don't get it, people that haven't had their eyes open to the kingdom, they're the ones that are chasing after this, and I love that he uses the word run. He's like, they're the ones that are sprinting after these things, that are exhausting themselves, that are constantly hurrying to get it. I think the pull of money also leads us to worry. Will this be enough? Will it always be enough? Am I making enough? Do I have enough? Again, Jesus knew that we'd be pulled to worry. In fact, just look at this passage and then look how many times the word worry shows up. Anytime that Jesus uses a word over and over and over again, this is my theological opinion, we should at least pay attention. It's, it's as if Jesus actually knows that this is gonna be a tendency of our heart. He's like, listen, I know you're gonna be inclined to worry about this stuff, to freak out about it. I know, that it's, I know what it's gonna do to your heart. Here's how I wanna guide you differently. Here's how I want you to live differently, to not be running after the things that you see so much of the world running after. He says, my kingdom works differently. Shows up over and over and over again. In fact, in his book, Worry Less, Live More, uh, Richard Morgan notes how, and I didn't know this, Amazon actually keeps track of like the most highlighted passages of all their uh, most, most read eBooks. And the YouVersion Bible app actually did a similar thing this last year to keep track of the most highlighted, most underlined uh, passage in 2019. Do you wanna know what it was? This is the most highlighted, most underlined, most shared verse in all the scripture last year. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. It's as if God knows you're gonna be inclined to worry, to anxiety. Now, I know that it's not just as simple as like, oh, I read a verse, now I can stop worrying. Perfect, thanks, Pastor. I, kn I know that it's not that simple. I know that it's more than just simply reading a truth on the screen. But it takes so much comfort in knowing that God, God knows that there's gonna be particular things that our hearts are sort of drawn to. There's gonna be this gravitational pull and often it will lead us to worry. Like, if I'm really honest, I grew up in a huge family. I'm the oldest of seven and uh, I, I never, it never really ever felt like we were missing anything. But I, I can remember sometimes like the stress of money and how that actually played out in my family. And I, I, I carry a lot of that into adulthood. Like, is anyone here in your house, you're the one who obsessively turns off all the lights in every room all the time? Is anyone, am I alone here? Yeah, like, there's no one even in this room. Why are these lights on, right? Or like, <laughs> the faucet is on for two seconds too long, and I'm like, that three seconds of faucet water, that's what's gonna break the bank. Like, what are we doing? It's amazing to me. I remember I opened up the cupboard the other day, and um, I, I never ate name brand cereal growing up, and we had like some actual Cheerios in the cupboard. And I like, turned to my wife and I was like, name brand cereal, honey, really? And she gave me this look and I was like, you're right, I'm so stupid, I shouldn't have said anything. I don't, that's <laughs> insane of me to bring it up. But there's this anxiety, this worry around, will I have enough? Will it always be enough? What happens if I don't? And maybe it was something more intense. Maybe it was like a season of unemployment that lasted a lot longer than you anticipated. Or maybe it was like a, a medical diagnosis that that just sort of took the wind out of your sails and there's all sorts of unexpected bills. Or maybe it was like a, like a business venture and at one point you were feeling really hopeful but it, it hasn't panned out the way that you anticipated that it would. I think for a lot of us the natural pull of culture is to worry, is to panic. Worry is very, very real. But I love the way that Corey Ten Boom puts it. 
She said, worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow, it empties today of its strength. Does anyone find that to be true? It doesn't actually accomplish anything. Jesus himself says, it doesn't make you any taller. You can't change much by worrying. It doesn't actually empty tomorrow of its sorrow, but it it does do something to you in the here and now, and I can 100% attest to this. And again, just like last week, this is a real area of struggle for me. I'm not standing on this stage in any way talking as someone who's like arrived in this capacity, not at all. But I know that there's a better way. Now the third thing that I think culture often pulls us towards is consumption, to just consume, right? A lot of times, I mean, this is sort of the season too where a lot of us are feeling like the weight of maybe too much spending during Christmas time. Anyone like in that moment right now, like, wow, I bought what? For who? I don't even like them. Why did I do that? That's insane. And sometimes, do you ever like look over your shoulder and you like look at the stuff you bought and you're like, that seemed like a good idea at the time, but we really don't need five Roombas. That's too many for any house. Why would we, a couple years ago, um, Uggs approached Tom Brady to be their spokesperson for Uggs because uh, they were trying to really popularize Uggs among men. And um, I don't think it worked, to be honest. Like here's, here's, uh, here's Tom Brady wearing them in the game. And I think it just doesn't have the... <laughs> Desired outcome, I don't think. In my personal opinion, uh, those are ugly. Like, it didn't work necessarily, but, but so often there's all, there's all of this stuff, all this energy meant to, to always want us to consume. And you look at your stuff and you're like, man, look around your room sometime. Look around your house. All that stuff used to be money. All that money used to be time. And when you really step back and look at it, like, man, sometimes we just, there's something in cultures like, man, you're not gonna be happy until you have this thing till you've enrolled in this program, till you can show off this car, whatever it is. There's a, an Atlantic article called We Are All Accumulating Mountains of Things. And the whole premise of the article is making the case that we're all sort of subtly becoming hoarders. Like some of the statistics about uh, like storage units just in our nation alone are staggering. In fact, they found in 2017, Americans spent $240 billion on non-essential things. $240 billion, that's more than twice what it was in 2002. Some experts estimate that to like solve the global world purity crisis would cost about 18 billion. The single greatest killer of humans, water purity, we spent, what, eight times more than that, more than that. Like it's an amazing feat when you look at the figures of how much we spend as a country, as a people. And yet we seem just as anxious just as filled with worry, just as rushed, just as overwhelmed, just as unsatisfied as ever before. There's a pastor named David Hansen. I love the way that he puts it. He said, the essence of life today is not having, it's having to have. Does anyone feel that? It's not even just having the thing, it's having to have the thing. Oh, I gotta have that, I gotta go there, I gotta see this, I gotta buy that. I, the insatiable appetite to have to have, and Jesus himself puts it this way in verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Say, like, do you wanna know where your heart is? Follow the paper trail. Do you wanna know what you really care about? Not just what you say you care about, or what you post online, like very carefully curated, what you actually care about, check the bank statements. It's sort of like in your car, you know, when the oil light comes on, it's not to let you know that there's a light problem in your car, it's to let you know that there's a what? An oil problem. Jesus is saying, man, money isn't good or bad. 
but it is an indicator of what's going on underneath the hood. Do you wanna know what your heart really cares about? Some of you are like, well, my heart clearly cares about tacos. I totally get it, I fully understand. But he's saying, this is the indicator light on the dashboard of your life. Do you wanna know what really is important to you, what you really care about? Check the paper trail. Your treasure will show you where your heart is. So hurry, worry, and consume. And the thing that I think all three of these have in common is that they're all me-focused. They all put me kind of on the center of the stage. And where does that lead? For a lot of us, it leads to dissatisfaction, to anxiety, to longing, to sorrow. Aren't you glad you came this morning, by the way? It gets better, I promise. <laughs> a me-first kind of living, though, and a lot of us know this because we've felt the burn of it. It, it doesn't actually accomplish what it whispers in our ear it will. This thing, this house, this salary amount, it maybe makes us happy for a moment, right? But how quickly are we dissatisfied once we achieve it? The square footage or the year of the car, whatever that thing is, it never actually really fully delivers. Jesus says there's a better way. Now, this particular passage is written by a guy named Matthew. Now, Matthew, I think, understands this hurry, worry, consume better than most. Matthew was a tax collector, and his whole world was exemplified by hurry, worry, and consume. In fact, to be a tax collector meant, for many people, he worked for the enemy, and the way that he got his salary was by cheating his own people out of whatever money he could so that he could survive. That's what it meant to be a tax collector in this day. So if anyone understood pursuing wealth at all costs, Matthew, the tax collector, gets it. Imagine how countercultural it would have been for him to hear Jesus say these words. Man, you're running after all these things and you're freaking out about all this stuff and you're building up for yourself a bigger and bigger pile that eventually isn't gonna amount to anything. It's like, man, man, you're going after the wrong things. Now, Jesus actually tells us the way to defy the gravitational pull in our culture. He says it in verse 33. He says, seek first his kingdom. Seek first my kingdom. He's saying so often I think we end up going after the stuff that you know, we think will make us happy. And here's what seeking first his kingdom doesn't mean. It isn't just attendance at a place on a Sunday morning. That's important. It's not even just like being in a small group or going to a Christian conference every once in a while or having some verses memorized. All of that is good. But seeking first his kingdom means that God's, God's kingdom is our first allegiance. Our first allegiance isn't to a political party or a figure or a nate. It's first to God and his kingdom, which means that everything then is submitted under that reign. That's very different than the Christianity a lot of us were handed. That I'll like have a little Jesus here, put a little Jesus over there, and I got my Jesus friends over here, and my Christian activity over here, and like that's my like really holy week over here, but then the rest of my life is mine. J Jesus gives no indication that he's interested in that sort of arrangement. To seek first his kingdom means that our allegiance is to a king and a kingdom. Like think about it this way, those of you who are married men, can you imagine if when you propose to your wife, right, and there's, you know, rose petals and Barry Manilow's playing in the background. Just, I don't know, I wasn't there. Um, <laughs> so the moment's right, and the sun's setting perfectly, and you're on the beach, and you, like, you take that knee, and you go, baby. That wasn't the funny part. What the <laughs> <laughs> People are like, baby, this guy. You open the box, and you're like, baby, you're the only one for me. 
However, there are a few other women I'd like to still keep seeing if that's okay with you. <laughs> Ladies, how many of you would haul off and smack the guy right then and there? Right, yeah, okay, that fastest hand in the right, right. That would, that would never work. You're like, baby, you are A1 for me. One among many, top three at best, right? Like that's, that would never fly. We know that, and yet we so often do that with our relationship with God. We're like, God, you should be really proud. You made it into the top five this week. Really proud of you, big guy. You did it. God shows us from Genesis to Revelation, he's not interested in that kind of arrangement. Not because he's petty, but because he knows that what Tim Keller calls disordered loves or disordered desires, that if God isn't number one, if our allegiance isn't first to him, then everything else is out of whack. We'll often say, God, you can have all of this, but like, I'm gonna keep this one on the side, that this one's for me. So maybe this will help us in seeing a little bit of what this me first living looks like to defy this gravitational pull. The first is consume, right? So in consume, like living is first priority, right? And I'm here to live, it's all about me, the greatest whatever, the greatest items, the greatest vacations, whatever, none of those things are bad. And then if you have any leftover, then maybe you'll save, then the very tail end, if there's any leftover after all that, then maybe I'll give, maybe I'll give. The next one is worry, right? So the worrier has to save first because you never know. I, I, gotta, I gotta make sure that my pile is bigger than everyone else's pile. I gotta make sure that I have multiple rainy day funds. Again, having a rainy day fund isn't a bad thing, but that becomes our priority. And then what's left after that, we live. And then maybe if there's more after that, we give. It's all about the leftovers. Like if there's anything left over after I've taken care of me and mine, then maybe I'll give. And God says, that's sort of like if a special guest came to your house for dinner and you're like, yeah, yeah, there's some styrofoam leftovers in the fridge from a couple weeks ago, have at it. We would never do that. And it's so often, I think, with God, that's exactly how we live. Now, the hurry lifestyle, the hurry's a little different because the hurry just sort of is like live, 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 like do, do, do experience, and then you, you have sort of this aha moment, and then for you, all of a sudden, it's like, uh, uh-oh. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't been really saving or giving at all because it's just all about the experience. But Jesus says there's an answer to this sort of me-first posture, this me-first perspective and it's seek first. Seek first my kingdom. It's a mindset and a practice that inverts the whole thing that begins with giving and then saving and then living. And here, here's why I think that matters so much. When we give first, what the Bible calls first fruits, we're, we're trusting God and his provision. We're saying, this is how I'm seeking first your kingdom in the world, recognizing that everything I have is a gift Everything this side of eternity is a gift that we're to steward well in the world. That's, that's central to the gospel story. So it says, God, this is all yours in the first place. And we'll have all sorts of resources offered in the, in the coming weeks. And I can't encourage you enough uh, to check out the website and find out what those are because we wanna actually give tools and resources. But one of the things that we talk about a lot here is the generosity ladder. This is sort of a, a tool or a way of thinking to take a step towards seeking God's kingdom first. So the, the first one here is to give something. And maybe you're here and you're, you're white-knuckling your finances and, and you're like not sure how you feel about all this. And, and I honestly, I, I felt that way myself. Part of that invitation is just start somewhere. Start somewhere by, okay, God, I'm, I'm gonna trust that this actual invitation generosity is real. You actually are gonna provide, just start somewhere. Maybe, maybe you can't loosen the whole grip. Maybe you just loosen a pinky. Maybe that's where you start. The second here, which is give generously, in, in the church world we call this a tithe, that's 
10% of what we make. Now, again, this is predominantly an Old Testament concept, but it's a really great starting point. 10% of what we make, we give to God as the first fruits, a way of saying, God, um, it's your kingdom that we're seeking first. Now, what I love, though, is this last one, the giving extravagantly. This is actually a much better picture of what we see in the New Testament. Because there is no mention of the 10% in the New Testament, actually. Paul's instruction to the church is uh, give joyfully, give proportionally, and give sacrificially. In fact, the church, before it had stages and jumbotrons and fog machines, it had its generosity. People that didn't even love Christians were writing about this. Like, what is up with these Galileans that they, they give so freely of everything that they have? The book of Acts tells us that no one among them was in need. They had this radical perspective that everything that they had was this sacred gift in the world. Why would I continue to store up on earth when I could use this to help people find their way back to God? What, what would that look like in our lives? If you're living in a hurry, worry, or consumed posture, is it possible that there's a better way? Because here's the thing. God's not asking you to feed the 5,000. He's just asking you to be faithful with the bread, the bread and fish that he's given you. That, that's the invitation, that wherever you're at in this journey, whatever God's blessed you with, to see that as a gift. The, the question isn't, God, how, how much of my money do I have to give you? The question really is, God, how much of your money do I get to keep? If everything is a gift, if breath in our lungs is a gift, what, what if we actually began to see our wealth and our finances and our resources like that? God, how much of what you've so freely given to me do I get to keep? Charles Spurgeon, I think, rightly puts it, it says, giving is true having. Giving is true having. And anyone who's actually taken that step toward generosity, you know this to be true. It's so countercultural, so counterintuitive. The Apostle Paul writes to young Timothy, he says, teach them to be generous so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Just don't forget, look at how Jesus said it. Remember, for where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. That's the core of it all. Jesus is after our heart. He doesn't just want our Sunday mornings. He doesn't even just want behavior modification. He wants our heart. He wants all of us. And he knows that what we do with our stuff, that's where our heart really is. Jesus, time and time again, says, don't just give me your Sunday morning. Don't just give me your lip service. Don't just give me your ideas and constructs. Give me you. That's what he desires for all of us. And is it possible that he was right? He said, man, when you seek first the kingdom of God, that's where real freedom is found. Let's pray together. God, I know that for a lot of us, this journey has maybe been wrought with fear or doubt or anxiety. And we know, God, that you see all of that wherever we're at in the world, God. Thank you for loving us time and time again and caring not just about our obedience, but our heart, our transformation. And God, what, whatever that is that we're white knuckling this morning, would you, by your Holy Spirit, help us to loosen our grip, God, to be a people of generosity, to seek first your kingdom in everything that we do, to, devote, to defy this gravitational pull that always says to do more for ourselves, to hurry from thing to thing. God, help us to seek first your kingdom. We thank you and we love you, God, and we pray all of this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.